My podcast guest today is Dr. Thomas Seafried, who's professor of biology at Boston College. He received his PhD in genetics and biochemistry from the University of Illinois back in 1976. So he knows a thing or two about genetics and biochemistry. He was assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at Yale University School of Medicine. He has received a number of Lifetime Achievement Awards, one from the Academy of Complementary and Integrative Medicine, and also the Uncompromising Science Award. I like that, the Uncompromising Science Award from the American College of Nutrition for his work on cancer. Tom has over 200 peer-reviewed publications to his name, and he's author of a truly excellent book called Cancer as a Metabolic Disease, on the origin, management, and prevention of cancer. And that is the main question we will be asking, is cancer genetic or metabolic? Welcome, Tom, to my podcast. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Patrick. It's, it's, it's very nice to be here. Now, the opening line in one of your papers, and you've published literally hundreds, is a theory that can best explain the facts of a phenomenon is most likely to advance knowledge than a theory that is less able to explain the facts. So as I understand it, and you can elaborate, there are two main theories of cancer. One is that it's genetic and the other is that it's metabolic. Can you explain these two approaches and which one of them best fits the facts of cancer and why? Yeah, well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, this is probably the, the, central, the central root of the problem uh, that we have today is to whether cancer uh, is a genetic disease uh, or it is is it a mitochondrial metabolic disease, and um, because the answer, the correct answer to this, it will determine how how we manage and approach uh, our our uh, this disease, cancer. So, um, you know, where where did the 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 fumbling around the beginning of the the 20th century, uh, Otto Warburg pretty much defined cancer as a metabolic disease based on the fact that almost, in fact, at that time, every cancer that he looked at uh, was was big into uh, a fermentation metabolism, uh, meaning that the cancer cells could get oxygen, uh, could get uh, energy without oxygen, um, and he attributed that to some defect in the ability of the cancer cells to obtain energy through uh, oxidative phosphorylation. So he more or less said all these tumor cells are producing large amounts of lactic acid uh, because they cannot basically uh, respire. So um, he, he was a, a, a quantitative biochemist. Uh, he, he received the Nobel Prize for his discovery uh, of the respiratory component of the electron transport chain, cytochrome C, the respiratory, uh, at that time, it, it was a big, a, a big advance, still is a big advance. Um, and he claimed that cancer cells um, have defects in, in their ability to get energy through, through respiration. Um, but he quant try, attempted to quantify this uh, by looking at oxygen consumption and um, production of lactic acid using formulas. Um, and there was some controversy about this. Uh, people were not totally convinced uh, when people looked at normal cells, uh, or I should say when others looked at cancer cells, they found a significant 
uh, oxygen consumption, thereby challenging what Warburg uh, had said. And um, I think it was around the time of Watson and Crick uh, with the DNA structure, uh, where the whole field shifted from the continued biochemical analysis of cancer into a genetic analysis of cancer. And uh, because it was sexy uh, to say that cancer involved mutations in the structure of the DNA. Um, and uh, this, they look back and they found out there was a speculative essay published in 1914 by Theodore Bovary, uh, a famous German uh, scientist who completely speculated that cancer may have something to do with chromosomes. So when Watson and Crick's uh, 1954, 55 discovery started to hit the waves. They said, oh yeah, cancer cells have defects in, in, in the chromosomes and DNA. And, and the field kind of ran off with this uh, anointing Bovary as, as kind of the founding father of the genetic theory of cancer. And Warburg was pretty much thrown under the bus. Um, they figured that this, these biochemists had their shot at trying to figure out cancer and they were able to, all they're doing is, is, is bickering with each other. So the field ran off onto a onto an analysis of gene mutations, which then exploded in the 1970s uh, with the awarding of Nobel prizes to people who discovered oncogenes and and then tumor suppressor genes and all these kinds of genes, and um, uh, the cancer field then kind of ad ad adapted this whole idea that this was some sort of a disease of somatic mutations. Um, as opposed to uh, germline mutations, although there are some germline mutation risk factors. Can you, so, can you explain uh, what that means for someone who doesn't understand somatic mutations and germline mutations? Yeah, this is an <clears throat> important point. So germline mutations are inherited within the genome. So we pass uh, germline mutations on from one generation to the next, uh, transmission inherited genetics, as opposed to uh, somatic mutations. These are mutations that are acquired uh, during the course of cell division or, or things like this. So they're not, they're not in the germline, they are acquired. And um, as we began to improve our technology in DNA sequencing and DNA analysis, um, uh, the field began to see uh, many, many different types of somatic mutations in every kind of a cancer, um, thereby linking the idea that uh, this dysregulated growth, they have to say, what is cancer? Cancer is basically dysregulated cell growth, uh, cell growth out of control. So what is the cause of cell growth out of control? And there were, as, as you said, Patrick, two uh, theories. One is that the cell growth is due to uh, dysfunctional uh, energy metabolism. And the other is that the cell dysregulated cell growth are due to mutations, somatic mutations that accumulate um, uh, through wear and tear on the system. So, um, you know, more and more, every major cancer has now uh, almost uh, have been shown to have all kinds of different genetic mutations. And the National Cancer Institute first thing on their website they say is that cancer is a genetic disease. And I think it's pretty well, um, it's become a dogmatic view. I think everybody thinks cancer is a, not everybody, but you know, all the major hospitals and research centers view cancer as a genetic disease. So then they ran off in a, uh, an attempt 
to target some of these somatic mutations as an attempt to improve uh, therapeutic uh, strategies for managing the disease. Turns out though, that every cell within a tumor has a different constellation of mutations. No two, no two cells within any kind of a tumor have exactly the same. Some tumor cells have no mutations, which they fail to, to discuss. Um, and then uh, you have now uh, with sequencing, I think they found up to a million different kinds of mutations. So, so then they said, well, maybe not all of these mutations are really the bad guys. Let's focus on these uh, driver mutations. So Vogelstein uh, and others said, yes, yes, driver, driver mutations are the real bad guys. So we're going to start focusing on driver mutations. And um, now it's turning out um, uh, embarrassingly that we're finding uh, many, many different driver mutations in tissues and cells of our body that never become cancer. And uh, we're also finding that some cancers have no mutations. And, uh, you know, this now starts to cr uh, create tremendous uh, uh, concern about like well, what's going on here. If we have all these kinds of things. So, um, so, I mean, to give you an example, it's a bit like saying, is this a bit like saying, you know, you take a hundred women with breast cancer and if the somatic gene theory was correct, you'd find, you know, some commonalities in their mutations. And that's go, true. Ah, you know, th these yeah. are the genes, but actually even the, the sort of hero drivers like BRCA perhaps, you know, would be one. I mean, one of the questions has always, you know, interested me is if half of women who have the BRCA genes seem to develop breast cancer and the other half don't, mm. what's different? Why one and not another? Yeah, well, that's a good point because the BRCA one is a germline, is a germline mutation. Okay. So that, yeah. and, and the BRCA one is what we call a risk factor. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not the, because we have to deal now, we have to deal with uh, primary and secondary causes. A primary cause of a particular phenomenon or disease and cancer, that should always be present. In other words, if BRCA1 were to be a primary cause of breast cancer, then every woman that would have the BRCA1 mutation should develop breast cancer. But as you said, only about 50% of women that have the mutation develop it. Uh, however, every woman that does develop breast cancer from BRCA1 has mitochondrial abnormalities. So uh, as Warburg said, all the origin of cancer comes from deficient respiration. That, mm -hmm. that could happen from any number of, of, of risk factors. Uh, an inherited mutation uh, that is uh, somewhat penetrant could elicit the cancer, but it's a secondary risk factor. The primary risk factor is the damage to the oxidative phosphorylation. If mm -hmm. BRCA1 does not damage the uh, oxphos, that woman would have the mutation but never develop breast cancer. Mm -hmm. The question then, of course, is why would that happen? How is that possible? The, the highest uh, risk factor, inherited risk factor, is the Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, which is a mutation in the so-called P53 mutation. And that's about 83%, 85% penetrant, uh, which is very high, mm -hmm. but it's not 100%. Not 100 so, and, every, and P53 encodes a protein in the mitochondria, making it dysfunctional. So every, all, all cancer uh, goes through the mitochondria, all the origin of cancer disrupts mitochondrial uh, oxidative phosphorylation, whether that comes from a, an inherited risk factor, whether that comes from ex, uh, a chronic exposure to carcinogens, whether it comes from systemic inflammation, intermittent hypoxia, 
uh, oncogenic viruses like papilloma, hepatitis viruses, or just general old uh, aging. Mm-hmm. Any, any of these factors uh, will damage oxidative phosphorylation, uh, eliciting the path to dysregulated cell growth. So uh, the gene theory is now, uh, I've, I've completely eviscerated this whole idea that cancer is a genetic disease, ma- mainly because of not only what I told you, that the some cancers have no mutations, normal cells have these driver mutations that never become cancer, um, but the nuclear transfer experiments pretty much uh, sealed the deal on the... Uh, on that, the were, they the, were they when you took um, a healthy nucleus and you put it in a cancer cell? Yeah, yeah. Just explain that in layman's terms, because I found that very yeah convincing. Well, you 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 have to you have to put those series of experiments together with the other things that I've I've just mentioned um, before I talk. Like like our our ancestral uh, people, humans that um, were evaluated. You no know, cancer was extremely rare. Uh, so like in Aboriginal populations, um, Albert Schweitzer, the humanitarian physician. Uh, in African primitive African tribes, the cancer didn't exist. Eskimos, when they were first evaluated, didn't have cancer. Our closest relatives, the chimpanzee, they don't they don't have never been documented breast cancer in a female chimp. So so you put all that together and, and you say, wow, there's some serious things here. But then you look at the nuclear transfer experiments, which which are the are the most devastating uh, observations and data against the somatic or the gene theory. And that's that was done by a broad range of uh, leading developmental biologists. And the nice thing about the nuclear transfer experiments is they were done in an unbiased way. These folks were not testing whether uh, cancer arose from from the mitochondria or the nucleus. They were just asking whether the nucleus of a tumor cell could direct normal development. Uh, that was their fundamental. Uh, uh, they were none of them even thought about uh, that their results would um, undermine the somatic mutation theory of cancer. So, so basically, uh, the, these kinds of studies they would they would have tumor cells and they would have um, normal cells, and the tumor cells were dysregulated in growth and the normal cells were regulated in growth. So, so the idea then became, if you transfer the nucleus of the tumor cell. Uh, remove remove the nucleus of a normal cell and replace it with the the nucleus of the tumor cell. Um, does that now give regulated or dysregulated growth? Um, because if the if the dysregulated growth were were due to mutations in the nucleus, then you would figure that the phenotype of the cell would be that of the abnormal nucleus. And surprisingly. Um, no, uh, the cancer cells were, were, were growth regulated completely. So in other words, the, the presence of the mutations in the nucleus were not the drivers of the dysregulated growth. Um, on the other hand, if you took the nucleus of a normal cell and put it into the cytoplasm of a tumor cell, oftentimes the cells would die, but those that did not die became tumorigenic. So it had it had nothing to do uh, with the nucleus. It had to do everything with the cytoplasm. So and, it's a bit like the cytoplasm. It's a bit like an egg, where the nucleus yeah. is the yellow, and that's where the yeah. genetic instruction is, and the the white is the cytoplasm. That's where the mitochondria are, which are like yeah. the energy 
factors, the energy yeah. factors of the cells. So right. He's right. saying if if you've got a cell that's now got dysregulated growth, it's a cancer cell. It's because the engine's messed up for whatever. Yeah. 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 So. Uh, so I, what I did, um, I simply went back through the literature and picked out all of these different papers that were uh, were presenting information like this. And they were repeated numerous times by the leading developmental biologists that, uh, on the planet. So, um, and they were repeated over and over again. It wasn't like this was just a one-shot deal. Uh, all of these different studies were all consistent with each other. Uh, in, in the fact that the nucleus was not the driver of the dysregulated cell growth. It was something in the cytoplasm. And that goes right back to Otto Warburg. Mm -hmm. Otto Warburg said the origin of cancer is defective uh, mitochondrial respiration, mm -hmm. completely supporting Otto Warburg's central theory. Um, the, problem, the problem with these kinds of experiments is that people cannot believe them. Uh, there's always some superficial response when you tell them, how do you deal with the nuclear? Oh, it hasn't been repeated. What do you mean? It's been repeated by the best guys over and over again and all different kinds of cancer models. So it wasn't uh, just one kind of model. Um, it's almost like I can't believe it. It's too devastating to believe because obviously it overturns the entire uh, cancer industry. Uh, what are we doing with all these precision medicines and all these immune therapies all based on the somatic mutation theory? And if the somatic mutation theory is incorrect, that means the majority of what we're doing to treat cancer is incorrect. Um, this is a very difficult pill to swallow. So you, if you ever hear people uh, you say, how do you deal with the nuclear transfer experiments if you're making all these drugs for cancer? Oh, I never heard of it. Oh, if it were true, we would have all heard of it. Um, it hasn't been repeated. Well, these are superficial uh, denials. The, if you sit down and look at the data, um, you can't. You come away with the with the with the with the uh, understanding, clear understanding. This cannot be a genetic disease, and I think that is too devastating. I, I think that is, it's hard for the, an entire industry to admit to admit that they made a mistake, um, because you're realizing that you're talking about hundreds of top medical schools. You're talking about a pharmaceutical industry. You're talking about federal government support, um, and 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 all of that is wrong. And the answer is yes, <laughs> unfortunately, it's wrong. And how do you know that? Because uh, we in the United States, we have over 1,600 people a day dying from cancer. It's a worldwide epidemic uh, of, of people dying. And there's, no, there's been no major change uh, other than uh, anti-smoking campaigns to, uh, to reduce cancer. None of these drugs that are being developed uh, are really effective in reducing the death rate. It's perfectly predictable because it's not a genetic disease and most of the therapies are based on the fact that it is. So the, it's clearly obvious. But, but as I said, I, I, don't, I think it's too difficult. I, I think it's just a, a denial. I, I don't know. Um, well, let's, was, let's, jump, let's, jump, let's jump to the other end of the story, so to speak, and maybe you know, work backwards because you are developing quite a reputation in the field of cancer for helping um, keep people with aggressive cancers. I'm thinking of, of blastomas in the brain alive uh, by the physicians who are following your science-based protocols. And obviously these have come out of a different way of thinking. That is the way of thinking that it's a metabolic disease. So, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing? And is it working? Yeah. So, I mean, this now comes back to the, the success 
of managing cancer based on the fact that it is a mitochondrial metabolic disease. So this now becomes a very uh, approachable disease uh, which can be, that can be managed without toxicity. And that comes from the fact that if the mitochondria are defective and the cells can't generate energy through uh, use of oxygen, then how else do these uh, cells uh, get energy for their dysregulated cell growth? Because as Warburg said, and I absolutely support what he said, without energy, nothing can grow. Energy is the central issue. So if we know how dysregulated cell growth is being driven by, by an energy metabolism, how are these cells growing uh, so aggressively if they don't use oxygen? And they use an ancient process of fermentation, which is energy without oxygen. So uh, what does that mean? So, uh, um, so what are the fuels that could generate dysregulated growth without oxygen? And that is glucose fermentation or lactic acid for they produce lactic acid. And our discovery um, was, was something that our, uh, Otto Warburg did not know about is that there is an amino acid glutamine, which can also be fermented. In other words, energy can be generated from glutamine without, uh, without oxygen. So these are the two fuels that are driving the beast. Dysregulated cell growth is, is uh, from a fermentation meta metabolism and the fermentable fuels are oxygen, a correction on our glucose and glutamine. And we interrogated the tumor cells with every kind of a fuel to see whether they could find if there's anything other than these two fuels that could drive them. And the answer is no. So we pretty much now know how to manage cancer. We have to simultaneously restrict the two fermentable fuels. Now, um, we can do that. Glucose is a non-essential metabolite. We don't, need, we don't need glucose. We can shut down glucose from our diets. The body can make small amounts of glucose that's necessary for certain types of, of functions. Um, the glutamine issue requires some uh, drugs uh, because there's no diet that can target glutamine. Um, we know that uh, uh, water-only fasting up to 14 to 20 days can restrict glutamine, reduce it down. But, you know, uh, it's it, it might be easier to use a drug. And we, we know these um, repurposed and the drugs. essence there is that glutamine is a protein. And no, no, glutamine is amino acid. And amino, amino acid. And uh, if we restrict, you know, all amino acids or proteins, uh, we may be at a lower protein, but we can't completely... Yeah, you can't get rid of glutamine is an extremely valuable and important amino acid in our body. It runs our gut, it runs our immune system, it runs the urea cycle. So you can't just get rid of glutamine, you'll, you'll kill somebody. So you have to know how to strategically uh, uh, manipulate and target glutamine availability. And that's why we developed the press pulse therapeutic strategy. You can press glutamine, you can continue a correction. You can, you can press glucose down because it's a non-essential uh, fuel, but uh, glutamine- and that's by going ketogenic. That's by- Yeah, glutamine. well, you go ketogenic or you can go water-only fasting or you can do a variety of things, mm -hmm. zero-carb diets and this kind of stuff. You can push glucose way down, way down. Um, but glutamine, on the other hand, you have, to, you, you have to be careful with that. So you can't just force glutamine down. You're going to hurt people. So this is what I'm saying. But we know the drugs that work really, really well. And you, and you first put the patient into a low glucose uh, diet, um, a low glucose situation, which could be mostly diet and uh, raising the ketones. 
which the tumor cells can't use. Ketones can only generate energy through using with oxygen. Tumor cells don't use oxygen, so they can't use the ketones. So, um, and then we hit, we hit the glutamine, uh, we pulse it, we pulse the targeting of the glutamine. And we use certain drugs to do that. Uh, 6-deoxynorleucine, uh, which is a glutamine analog that's been used in the past, wasn't very effective because they never targeted glucose at the same time. Mm -hmm. This whole metabolic therapy works only if you target the two fermentable fuels at the same time, simultaneously, while transitioning the whole body over to fatty acids and ketones, which cannot be used directly by the tumor cells. It's not a difficult thing. I don't know. I, To me, it's not difficult, but apparently to the world, it, it seems like it's an impossibly difficult situation. I, I can't understand that. So can Take I clarify here? So the drug basically mimics glutamine, but the cancer cell can't use it. Is that the basis? For yeah, it? well, the, the drug block. So the cancer cell is taking in large amounts of glutamine. Mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, the nitrogen on glutamine is needed for DNA and RNA synthesis, protein synthesis. Also, the glutamine drives energy metabolism through a specific pathway in the Krebs cycle. So this this uh, this uh, glutamine gives us a lot of that gives cancer cell a lot of uh, opportunity for growth. Uh, but it works uh, parallel off the glucose pathway, the glycolysis pathway. So you need those two fuels together, the glucose and the glutamine, which work uh, synergistically with each other to drive this, to drive the dysregulated growth. So yeah, so the cell uh, opens the floodgates for sugar glucose and opens the floodgates for the amino acid glutamine. The drug um, uh, blocks the first major enzymatic step. So the glutamine is taken into the cell and it's metabolized to glutamate. And the glutamate then is used for energy synthesis. So the drug that we use, 6-deoxynorleucine, blocks the enzymes needed to, to metabolize glutamine to glutamate. So you're, you're shutting down that whole glutaminolysis pathway. So the cancer cells then become crippled. They, they can't grow, they can't make DNA and RNA. And then you take away the glucose and they can't make uh, lipids or proteins. So you're shutting down, you're not only taking away the energy, you're shutting down the two pathways for the metabolites for rapid growth. So in a sense, you're completely crushing these tumor cells and, and the ketone bodies help the normal cells. So all the normal cells in the body switch over to ketones, getting, getting healthier. So mm -hmm. the, we're making the normal cells of our body healthier and, and we're marginalizing and, and uh, destroying the tumor cells. There's nothing more elegant, nothing more beautiful than this, than this therapeutic uh, strategy. It works, it no. works, and it works effectively if people know how to do it. And can any doctor prescribe this drug? Um, well, right, right. Yeah. Right now the drug, uh, the, well, the food and drug administration, it, it used to be approved. I, I don't know what happened, but it's, it's available, but it's, it, it's, it's produced, but it's not available. I, I, they would, I, I can't explain that. And I know some, some pharmaceutical companies are in the business of building a, a variant of that drug, uh, because if they can patent the variant, then they'll make you know large amounts of money. But mm -hmm. but the issue, of course, is that the drug alone is not going to be sufficient to ma to manage the majority of cancers. The drug only becomes super powerful 
when it's used together with uh, glu glycolysis targeting, gl glucose targeting. So as uh, a package deal, people have to understand that uh, you got to shut down the two fuels together and transition the whole body over to ketones. That's the strategy. And when so, you say when you say pulsing, I mean, first of all, is it helpful at all to have a lower protein diet? And if you pulse, are there sort of periods of weeks when you're, for example, on the drug and then off? Or no, 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 no. You have to do it. In fact, if you if you don't do it right, you can paralyze your immune system. See, if you kill large amounts of tumor cells, you need a a, a rapid immune system to come in mm -hmm. and pick up the corpses. Otherwise, you're going to get an infection. You're going to end up with all kinds of other problems. So you have to be very strategic on how you target the glutamine. So, uh, um, and this is what I'm saying, pulsing is just like one day uh, with a certain uh, uh, dosage. And we're working out dosage timing and scheduling as we speak. Mm. So, so this is, you know, this is going to be the future of how all cancers are managed. It's just that we're on the cutting edge of doing this. And, um, you know, when patients get these drugs and it's not, there's other glutamine uh, drugs, but we, we can't find anything as powerful as, as 6-deoxynorleucine, which is a Don, D-O-N. Um, it's an old drug, you know, it was, it's a, it was de derived from, uh, it was an antibiotic kind of a thing. Um, but again, you know, people didn't know how to use it. They gave it, they gave patients too much of it, didn't work real well. You got to know how you, how to use the tool. If you have a tool, you need to know how to use the tool. Um, so, so uh, uh, yeah, you have to, you have to shut down these two fuels and transition the body over to ketones in order to get the, the maximum therapeutic benefit. And when we do that, uh, not protein, uh, you know. There's car there's we, we uh, Pablo Kelly who's managing his glioblastomas on a on a carnivore diet. Um, you know, he's just keeping his blood sugar low, and uh, his total calories low, and he's doing he's doing his his, his tumor's not cured. Uh, it, he gets it debulked every. He's from Devon, England. Um, he 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 gets it debulked every three or four years. Uh, so we don't say Pablo Kelly is cured. Pablo Kelly is managed. Yeah. And we can manage, we can manage without, so he's, he's lived eight and a half years uh, with a tumor that kills most people within a year. And um, he never took any radiation or chemo or any of that stuff. And he's just doing it with a metabolic approach. And I think at some point he may want to consider some other drugs that we're working on, like some of these uh, parasite drugs that can also target the same pathways. I mean, there's so many new things that we can do to kill cancer cells uh, without toxicity. And um, there's no, there's no need for lower protein because you said he's doing it in a carnivore way. Yeah. Oh yeah. A lot of carnivore people are, are, yeah. are doing really well. As long as they can keep their blood sugar down and their ketones up, um, they seem to be doing, doing uh, re relatively well. well I, some, I think. Yeah. Somebody said to me that some prostate cancers can feed on ketones. So is this a myth? Well, no, that's uh, we looked at that. You can't, as I said, uh, when I looked at the uh, uh, energy, when I looked at the structure of the mitochondria in prostate cancer, uh, they were all busted up. So you're not going to be able to get energy out of ketones in prostate cancer. And as a matter of fact, I had a colleague, um, Dr. George Yu, uh, a prostate cancer guy, uh, 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 oncologist, and he said, I don't believe you uh, about this prostate cancer. So he said, I got some tissue from one of my, a uh, couple of my prostate cancer patients. And he sent it to Johns Hopkins for an electron micrograph uh, to look at the mitochondria. 
And sure enough, the mitochondria blown to hell. And then he comes back and he says, yeah, there's no way in hell these, these prostate cancer cells can use fatty acids or ketone bodies. Mm -hmm. um, for So we found the same thing with all the cancers. They all have defects in the number, structure, and function of mitochondria, meaning mm -hmm. that they're going to have to ferment to get energy. Mm -hmm. So all the cancer cells are, all these cancers all have a, a similar problem. They're, they're all dependent on uh, fermentation metabolism. So there's no unique breast cancer, colon cancer, brain cancer, uh, you know, um, bladder cancer. They're all fermenters. So once you know that, then you know how to kill them. Um, the problem is what I, what I said is just too, they, people can't believe it. They just can't, can't comprehend what I just said. No, I mean, it's very eloquent uh, uh, and fantastic to hear, really hopeful. Do you augment with any supplements? I remember reading about HCA, ALA, vitamin C and so on. Uh, you know, um, I, I look at supplements as things that don't hurt you. Um, do, do they, can they help you? Um, maybe, uh, but all I know is these cells without targeting their glucose and glutamine, uh, you're not going to achieve the mission. Now, mm -hmm. if I'm simultaneously targeting glucose and glutamine while the body is in a state of therapeutic ketosis, is it possible that we can throw some supplements in? that could kind of push this along a little bit. Yeah, uh, possibly, but you know, uh, let's go to the heart of the matter. Let, let's, let's knock the crap out of their energy metabolism, then worry about these superficial things later on. Um, you're, you're not going to manage cancer with metformin or any of these smaller things that people want to use. You know, um, Frank, I don't know. You can name them all. Um, they're, they're not going to hurt the patient. Let's put it that way. And they may have some therapeutic benefit, but they're not the going to, they're not the big uh, backbreaker on this whole thing. You, mm. you gotta, you gotta, you gotta simultaneously target those two fuels and tr tr transition that body over to ketones. So those fuels work a hell of a lot better because what we find is these, uh, glucose glutamine targeting drugs work so much better when the body is in ketosis. Mm -hmm. So and they go through the blood brain barrier. I mean, we did all this stuff. It's unbelievable. It's actually astonishing um, uh, how well this stuff works when you, when you know how to use it and do it. Now, hydroxycitric acid, which is the kind of active ingredient in the, in the tamarind, Garcinia camboga, that's sort of quite interesting in what it does to energy metabolism in the, in the. Yeah. I, I haven't looked at it. So I, I don't, I can't speak to things that I have not studied. Yeah. So yeah. when I study them, we have a pre, uh, 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 the best preclinical systems for ferreting out and looking at therapeutic things. And, mm. um, you know, it, it, it uh, unfortunately, these are not easy experiments because you have to try to ferret out which, which part of the therapeutic strategy is really responsible for the majority of the effect. Mm -hmm. So you have to run each one of these products by itself and then in combination with others uh, other other drugs and procedures to see whether or not who who's 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 calling the shots here which one has the biggest effect mm -hmm. and then you, you know, these animal experiments are not cheap uh the labor they're very labor intensive so to to really go down as i as i said to, said to my students and and research staff um let's let's manage the disease first big time uh, and then worry about all these other things later on, because everything can be perfected better. But let's give the patients a chance to live longer uh, with a higher quality of life first, and then go back and see if we can streamline some of these things. Because if we if we divert our attention to uh, procedures and drugs and things that are not are not the the the, the bigger the, the more powerful ones, then we then we we all these poor folks are still dying and suffering. 
So uh, I want to I want to stop the death and suffering first, and then go back and streamline the system. Now that makes total sense, but I do want to ask you about vitamin C, and I'm thinking here of some of the work out of uh, Walter Longo's area. Uh, this was CRAS positive cancer cells, where they used a ketogenic fasting mimicking diet, which yeah. seemed very effective at reducing tumor volume, or vitamin C, which had similar effect, and the two together were by far the best. And yeah. I'll just throw in that question as well. You know the work of Jane McClelland, her book, How to Starve Cancer. So at least the title sounds exactly where you're at, except there are three sides to her triangle. Uh, that is uh, glucose, uh, glutamine, and also fats. We put the fats to one side just for a minute. Uh, but her latest version of the book says how to starve cancer and kill it with ferroptosis. The idea being that cancer cells uh, um, uh, you know, are, are, can't deal with the pro-oxidant effect of high-dose intravenous vitamin C. So right. could you say something about vitamin C in the context of this? Yeah, well, uh, IV vitamins, it has to be IV, not, not oral. Um, mm. The studies clearly showed that it's IV. What it does is it creates reactive oxygen. It increases ROS, reactive oxygen species, which kill tumor cells. I mean, this is the same thing that a lot of chemo drugs do and the same thing that uh, radiation does. It kills these tumor cells by elevating reactive oxygen species. Mm -hmm. And again, it, wor it works better if you put them on a keto, reduced glucose, because then, then the glucose is used for the pentose pathway. Uh, you, can, you can then increase glutathione. So if you take away glucose, and if you take away glucose and glutamine, the tumor cell will become extremely vulnerable to IV vitamin C. Um, because you're increasing reactive oxygen species. And that's the mechanism that IV vitamin C uh, works works through. And it will work really well if you take away the two fuels that are responsible for the antioxidant capacity of the tumor cell, uh, which is basically a, a glutathione. So um, you're really, because glutamate is part of the glutathione and um, NADPH coming through the, the pentose pathway. So you're going to shut down. You're going to make those cancer cells extremely vulnerable uh, to death by IV vitamin C if you're also targeting glucose and glutamine at the same time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, this, this, this certainly uh, will be therapeutic. And I know a lot of people doing it. Um, but you know, the problem is if you use IV vitamin C without also targeting glucose and glutamine, you're not going to get the full power of what that, of what that yeah. therapy is going to do for you. Yeah, so, yeah. so again, you, you have to know how to work all these different procedures off, off of each other. Mm -hmm. um, now, as far as the fats concerned, um, cancer cells can't burn fatty acids. Okay. So how is, how do fatty acids provoke tumor cells? Okay. So listen, uh, fatty acids have this capability of causing, um, uh, you, you, you can cause uncoupling, right? The, there's a, what we call uncoupling of the mitochondria. So the mitochondria are already defective in cancer. You throw fatty acids there. And what they do is they, when you uncouple the mitochondria, you bring in much greater amounts of glucose and glutamine. So fatty acids uh, are actually indirectly supporting the glucose glutamine uh, utilization. So uh, some people say, well, fatty acids make the tumor grow faster. Yeah, because they, it forces the tumor cells to use more glucose and glutamine. It's not the fatty acids, it's the glucose and glutamine. You take away glucose. Listen, we have never found the tumor cell that can survive with fatty acids alone, with ketone bodies alone. Uh, they, they can't live on that stuff. So they have to have glucose and glutamine. Will fatty acids uh, make tumors grow faster. Yeah, there's glucose and glutamine available. Fatty acids can make them grow faster. But if I take away glucose and glutamine, fatty acids can't do anything. 
So they're not, they can't be respired. They're, they're a non-fermentable fuel. So ketone bodies, fatty acids, uh, all of these things that would be respired, they can't be, they, they're, 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 they can't be respired. So cancer cells are dependent on fermentation. Mm -hmm. uh, fatty acids and ketone bodies cannot be fermented. So there you go. Yeah, I, it's wonderful. I mean, we have 100 years now of the treatment of epilepsy uh, with ketogenic diets. And uh, I hope now people will wake up to the fact that a ketogenic diet is absolute cornerstone uh, to drive that glucose down. And the glutamine, it seems like, uh, you know. Well, the... yeah, I, I, I like we like to say the ketogenic diet, but I would say any diet that can lower blood sugar and elevate ketones would wow. be thera therapeutic. Okay. Uh, that's why water only fasting is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, yeah. you can, I know people, it, I, you hate to say it because then you, people <clears throat> say, well, this guy's a nut. He's going to tell me I can't eat food for, for 14 yeah. to 21 days. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, but I say those people that do that uh, seem to have tremendous uh, success in managing their cancer. Now, in Jay McClellan's approach, he also talks about press and pulse. I mean, the, 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 the basic concept, at least to understand it, is that you weaken the cancer cell, you starve the cancer cell fuel. And then you, you know, whack in intravenous vitamin C. I'd love to ask you about dose recommendations there. And when you say press and pulse in your strategy, could you explain that a bit more? Yeah, well, so the press pulse concept uh, came from the uh, paleobiologists, uh, Aaron and Aaron's and West. Um, I, ad I adapted that concept. See, the the history of our, uh, of, uh, species on our planet. We went through all these great extinction uh, in the past, these extinctions. And they, they argued that the greatest extinctions uh, of organisms on the planet uh, were linked to a press pulse uh, phenomenon. So uh, an environmental stress on the planet uh, would eliminate a lot of weaker species. Um, but there was always some uh, species that could hang on even under this uh, stringent environmental stress. Then you couple that with a, a meteor strike or a giant volcano eruptions and things like that. And that would then exterminate even the, the hardy, the hardy uh, ones, the hardy ones that could hang on. And it was only through a press pulse concept that you could actually cause uh, mass population extinctions. So basically what I did was I took that same concept and said, well, um, you know, if we hit them with glutamine alone, we're only, we're going to kill all the glutamine guys. And if we hit them with glucose alone, we're going to kill the glucose guys. Um, but the glucose dependent cancer cells, it's, it's only when we hit them together. Uh, so you can, as I said, you can press glucose causing a, a stress on yeah. the availability of, of fuels, but it's when you hit the glutamine, you take away their, their energy. So it's, it's a combination mm -hmm. of you want, you want the complete elimination of the tumor cells in your body. And, uh, you know, what we're doing in the clinics now is we're just pouring massive doses of poisonous chemicals into the bodies of these poor folks. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're using immunotherapies, you're using chemotherapies, radiation therapies, and, and you're, you're just destroying everything. Um, but if we use a more, a more logical strategy, press pulse, we can slowly degrade. And the idea is, um, when every when you stress the environment, uh, the, the the weak tumor cells will die, but then some of them will hang on. But as we pulse the glutamine, we do it strategically, so we don't get rid of all the tumor cells at the same time. We degrade them slowly. 
So we have kind of like a chokehold on the glucose, and then we just pulse the, the glutamine, and gradually we degrade, slowly degrade the tumor. So the patient comes in, the patient has uh, cancer. Oftentimes the patient has diabetes, uh, uh, hypertension, has all kinds of other things. So we need to clear up the, the mess in the patient's body. We do that with a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet or any diet that would lower glucose and elevate, uh, elevate ketones. And then we gradually degrade the, the, hit them with glutamine targeting drugs. So we bring the patient from a state of disease to a managed state. Uh, and then with continued dosage timing and scheduling approaches, we bring the patient back out now uh, of the disease state. Now, think about this for a minute. Um, if the patient has cancer <clears throat> and oftentimes type two diabetes, hypertension, a variety of other uh, ailments, uh, we gradually change the whole physiology of the patient. So not only do they get rid of the cancer, they get rid of the diabetes, the hypertension, and all the other, uh, what we call chronic abnormalities uh, at the same time. Mm. Uh, so this patient now emerges as a very health, far healthier uh, than they were when they first started. This is completely different than what we're doing today with these poor folks. Uh, they were irradiating and poisoning them when they come out. And, 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 and about 45 to 50% of the folks that are being treated for cancer are dying from the treatments before the, before the cancer kills the patients. So this is nuts. Uh, we have to stop doing this. Otherwise, we're, uh, we're going to continue this fiasco. This is one of the greatest um, problems. This is one of the greatest tragedies in medical history is what we're doing today. It's medieval what we're doing to these poor folks. Is the intravenous vitamin C then part of pulse as well? I mean, how would you use that in your, you know? In yeah, your I, I think that could certainly be part of the pulse strategy. Um, uh, no question about it. I mean, I mean, this is another another strategy that works uh, for sure. Because everyone um, has a different view whether you do it, you know, like, uh, you know, three times a week, every three yeah. months, or whether you're yeah. using 100 grams or some go even higher than that. Right, right, right. No, no, that could be in part, certainly uh, integrated into the pulse strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, as long as you're holding that glucose tight, as long as you keep that glucose under control, yeah. uh, the, you're going to increase the uh, reactive oxygen species and kill the tumor cells. The yeah. nice thing about IV vitamin C is that it's um, it, it it can degrade it it, it can it can de slowly degrade uh, tumor cells. You don't kill them all at one time because then this causes um, a reactive uh, a problem. You can die from uh, an anaphylactic kind of a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so you were, uh, IV vitamin C is, is, is a nice add-on to this whole thing. I can't tell you how many times I've suggested that to uh, oncologists of, of clients that I've been working with, and they say, oh, no, 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 you can't. The IV vitamin C will compete or interfere in some way with the chemo drug. And I've looked it up in PubMed and in nearly every case, it just augments, it enhances. Yeah, right. It does. It yeah. does. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, the, the clinic in Istanbul, they use the lowest doses of chemo drugs together with metabolic therapy and they're getting success. So, uh, um, but they told me they would love to not do it at all with the chemo drugs, but, but it, it's part of the standard of care everywhere. Yeah. Uh, you have to use these toxic drugs mindlessly using toxic drugs. Um, you know, uh, it, it, without the, this tells this speaks to a lack of knowledge on what the biology of the, 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 the affliction actually is. So, so, uh, so anyway, this, these are the problems we have to deal with. 
So uh, what are your results? Tell us a little bit about your results, especially with some of the very aggressive tumors you've been dealing with. Yeah, well, I mean, we have Pablo Kelly, who's kind of now become the spokesperson for uh, uh, glioblastoma. He also had an IDH1 mutation. And uh, here, the crazy thing about it is that the IDH1 mutation is a therapeutic mutation. I published this. This was that nobody wanted to hear that. Um, so listen to this. Uh, this mutation acts as a drug. Can you believe it? The mutation disrupts the glycolysis and glutaminolysis pathways, the, mm -hmm. sa the same way our press pulse therapy works. So uh, people who have a, a, a glioblastoma that also have this IDH1, isocitrate dehydrogenase 1, they, their tumors grow much less aggressively. So um, Pablo, Pablo has one of these kinds of things. Now, here's the absurdity. Um, every so many people in the cancer field think all mutations are bad and we have to target the bad mutations, right? So um, they make pharmaceutical companies that would target the product of the IDH1 mutation, which is 2-hydroxyglutarate. So 2-hydroxyglutarate um, interferes with the glycolysis and glutaminolysis pathways that are driving the tumor. So these companies think that's bad. So they go out and make, a, make a drugs to target the very molecule that's given the patient an opportunity to live longer. Can you believe this? Mm -hmm. So then they tried some of these drugs on these GBM patients. It killed the patients faster. Uh, and yet they continue to use this. These, it, it's just the absurdity. I, I, to, to the point, I, sometimes I say to myself, what am I living on a different planet? You know, how, how are these people so, how, how can they lack so much knowledge on the biology of the disease they're treating where they're making drugs that actually kill the patients faster than the disease itself? Um, so, so uh, uh, you know, I look at this and I just keep shaking my head, yet there seems to be some momentum to build these crazy drugs that, that, are, that are killing these poor patients faster. I, I just don't understand it. So, so uh, um, but, but, you know, uh, my success is we think that when we um, treat cancer patients uh, with metabolic therapy, now we have several, my, my Greek colleague, uh, Athanasis Evangelio, published a beautiful paper entitled Restricted Ketogenic Diet Therapy for Primary Lung Cancer with Metastasis to the Brain. Now, this, this guy from Greece, uh, uh, Dr. Athanasis Evangelio, understands metabolic therapy. This guy's out nine years now. Uh, when you have metastasis to your brain from any type of a cancer, it's usually a death sentence. But we have this guy; he's out alive nine nine years now. The group, the group in uh, um, uh, Istanbul, we had a, a woman with stage four metastatic breast cancer that metastasized to her brain. Uh, she was from the United States. She went to Istanbul. She was in the emergency room, uh, intensive care for for at least three weeks because she almost died during the trip there. Now um, she had metastasis, breast cancer metastasis to the brain. And uh, last year we got a, uh, her and her husband were vacationing in Hawaii. Uh, that, when she was in the United States, they said, oh, you only have one month to live. Well, they were obviously very wrong about that. Um, our newest, uh, we, we have several lung cancer patients, breast cancer patients. I'm trying to write these up as case reports, right? And they always say, oh, it's only an N of one. Oh, only an N of one. Oh, only an N of one. Are you kidding me? I says, you don't have anything in the, in the, uh, that's working like this. Uh, well, well, how come there's no clinical trials if this stuff is so good? Well, who's going to do the clinical trial? People who don't know the first thing about metabolic therapy. 
uh, who's going to pay for the clinical trial? You want a clinical trial to show that non-toxic metabolic therapy is better than all these expensive immunotherapies? Who wants to support that? So everything is quite logical. But you, our, our new paper on uh, resolution of canine mast cell tumor, now this will come out tomorrow. Uh, it's going to be released for publication, a case report where we use nothing but metabolic therapy alone to completely resolve an aggressive uh, mast cell tumor on the face of a dog. Um, uh, no drugs, nothing, just a, a massive switch in diet and completely uh, resolved the, this dog. The dog died from old age, uh, from heart failure, never, never. So this is the first complete resolution that we've had. I haven't been able to achieve this in our aggressive mouse models. Um, and we're not, we're not sure yet how, how many of our humans uh, can die of old age without having a recurrence of cancer. We won't know that for, for probably several decades, uh, despite they're all living well with a higher quality of life, but we don't know if something would recur. But in this case with the dog, there was no, re it was complete resolution, no recurrence, um, simply from oh, metabolic. Are you, are you saying with your patients following this approach, presumably not at the very last, you know, moment of metastases, they're all still alive if they follow this approach, that there's no cancer that you've treated where this has been unsuccessful? Uh, we can't, no, there's unsuccess for sure. Uh, and and we, we don't have success is the patients were unable to get themselves into the, um, the, the, the necessary glucose ketone index yeah. uh, that would be necessary um, for whatever reason. And, and many, many of our failures uh, come from people who email me uh, and try to adapt this when they're in hospice. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're at the end of their their rope. I I feel really bad. You know, this poor guy or person. Yeah. Uh, you know, has been radiated, poisoned. I mean, he's been surgically mutilated. I mean, the poor guy is nothing but a walking bunch of bones. And then they try to do metabolic therapy, and it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, but you know what? Uh, uh, he should have never been in that position in the first place. Now, most let, of the, yeah, most of the people do well if they if they started at first. Yeah. Let me ask you about GKI. You may not know that I've been taking groups of, say, 18 people uh, down to my lovely retreat center in Wales. And we've been doing a, a kind of five day fasting mimicking diet. And uh, we want to get people to a GKI of at least one. And they usually end up at two. That's the glucose ketone index. So, for example, if your glucose was four and your ketone was two. You know, that's that's, uh, you know, that's a, a two in one situation. If yeah. you've got you know, if you've got to four and four, four ketones, four glucose, that's one. So we want to get from two to one. Is that what you're talking about? What's the. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. Uh, uh, for the can't, what we, we defined it as, as 1.0 or below. Yeah. But then when we did Pablo Kelly, he, he was doing really well with 2.0 and below. Okay. So, um, so we kind of, if you're down by two or one, uh, you're, you're really doing, you're putting a lot of pressure on those tumor cells. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're under a press so that the GKI will tell you where the press is. So, uh, and, and a lot of people say, well, I'm on doing keto. I said, what's your GKI? Well, I never measured it. Well, you got to measure it. Then you really know. Yeah. So, um, healthy people, uh, who don't have cancer, uh, can often get well below one. Um, they can get down to zero point uh, six zero point eight somewhere around these ranges, mm -hmm. where ketones are actually ahead of the uh, more than the glucose in in millimolar in the blood, um, 
And, you know, we're not saying you have to stay in this my, uh, zone forever. You know, my colleague, Dominic D'Agostino is, is a leader in the nutritional ketosis field. You know, Do Dominic is always in a, a, a level of therapeutic ketosis. He's always down in the, the two to three, the one range. Uh, you know, we evolved as a species, you know, and our, our paleolithic ancestors uh, was no carbohydrates in the diet, rare, very rare. You know, they were eating uh, meat and uh, whatever they, berries, whatever they could find, they would eat it. Um, th these folks were always in ketosis. Mm -hmm. So uh, we can't go back though and, and measure the GKI of our paleolithic ancestors, but we well, can certainly try a paleolithic diet and, and see what we get. And when you do a paleolithic diet, you're, you're, you're in ketosis. Funny. So clearly- yeah, one of my brilliant scientists, Professor Michael Crawford, he was the guy who put DHA omega-3 on the map. And where I live, they found a 35,000-year-old Homo sapiens in the Gower Peninsula, the Paviland Man. And when they analyzed the bones, about a quarter of their diet was marine food. So, you know, again, yeah. you very, very little carbs. And by the way, everyone in the whole cancer field should be shocked and should be tremendously encouraged by what you're saying. But I, I've been working lately in the dementia field. And I'll give you, there's two parallels here. Number one, uh, there are 300 studies now on the amyloid hypothesis mm. that it's the cause of dementia, which have failed. There have been 30 studies of drugs, anti-amyloid antibody drugs that have lowered amyloid and have absolutely no clinical mm. effect. Yeah, at all. I know. Um, and, uh, you know, despite that, the trend keeps rolling. And one of the things I did, everyone bangs on about APOE4 and people get very worried if they've got APOE4. And of course, all the good studies that have changed diet or given omega-3, which is very good, or B vitamins. And recently we've discovered that the homocysteine-lowering B vitamins don't work if you don't have sufficient omega-3. And the omega-3 doesn't work if you don't have sufficiently low homocysteine. Mm. But um, uh, all of the good studies that have changed diet or given B vitamins or given omegas or whatever have always measured APOE4. So I went back to see if the outcome was any different, whether you had APOE4 or you didn't. And out of 14 studies I looked at, only one of them showed a difference. So, yeah. you know, we're in this generation where everyone thinks it's the genes that's driving the disease, but actually, and of course, if we had another hour, we could talk about it, but we know it's what we're eating, including yeah. lots of sugar and lots of carbs, yeah, uh, you know that's the major driver of of cancer. That's kind of the bottom line in a way, isn't it? And not not only cancer, dementia, heart disease, yeah. cardiovascular, all these different things. Yeah, um, they just completed the uh, the big Mediterranean diet uh, study yeah. with sixty thousand, yeah. and they lowered cancer, dementia, and uh, cardiovascular disease by about thirty five percent. So um, it, it's it's not so much the Mediterranean diet; it's the absence of of processed carbohydrates. <laughs> that are that are killing us <laughs> the western we're all dying we're all dying from the same problem <laughs> high carbo poorly processed carbohydrates is killing us yeah. uh, you know so it's not that complicated but yeah. it is when you look when you're looking at a nice jelly filled donut or a big pastry you know it's like uh uh we're, brain is addicted to glucose and the the glucose addiction is uh keeping us unhealthy and yet here we have the wonderful cancer charities who are throwing parties where you make cupcakes and cakes and sugar-filled things and you feed them to your neighbors to get them to give you some money to put in clean research. Uh, yes, as somebody said on one of my blogs on, on uh, vaccines, they said, shame there isn't a vaccine against stupidity. 
<laughs> anyway, just to end, uh, your work is fantastic. You are a legend. What you say just makes sense. As a trouble, common sense is not quite so common these days. What's the name of your book? Um, how do people find out more about your work? Is there a website to go to? Um, how do we dig a little bit deeper into what really is a very simple and amazing? Yeah. Well, I, I, I publish most of my papers open access where anyone uh, can read them on online. So you don't have to have a subscription to a particular scientific journal. Some of them I do have in the science journals, but most of the ones uh, you can just email, email my name and look at PubMed or something like that or recent publications and you can see the uh, the data. So in other words, the important issue here is let let people read the actual case reports for themselves, see what those folks did to return them their bodies back to health. Um, yeah, my book I, I wrote in 2012, um, Cancer is a Metabolic Disease, uh, which is quite selling briskly, I have to be honest with you. It's very expensive. I, I didn't set the price on this book. John Wiley Press did. So people get angry about oh, being so expensive. Listen, I had nothing to do with that. And John Wiley is making most of the money on that book. I can tell you that. Um, but that goes, that takes a deep dive uh, into the, into the science behind uh, what we're doing, because ultimately it's the, it's the scientific credibility of what I'm saying. Is it supported by experimental evidence? And the answer is yes. And it's getting better and stronger all the time with more and more, uh, with more and more approaches and people looking into this. Um, but yeah, we're, we're forging ahead. Um, there's no question in my mind that cancer will be eventually treated as a, as a metabolic disease with much better outcomes. Um, it's just going to take time for the system uh, to adapt to this, this new idea. And when that happens, I think we're going to finally, for the first time, uh, reduce the death rate uh, from cancer. It's not going to be easy because people have to really reevaluate what they're eating, their exercise levels, and all these other things. Uh, but at least it's there. It's an option that we don't currently have. Before Linus Pauling died, um, I filmed him on his theory of lipoprotein A, and he looked me in the eye and he said, Patrick, it's the logic that counts. Just yeah. follow the logic. And you've been so clear in that logic. I've learned that the thing that stops or gets in the way of the logic is the money. And, yeah. you know, yeah. unfortunately, we have a big industry that is uh, dependent on not believing what is so obviously and apparently true. Professor Thomas Seafried, thank you very, very much. Well, thank you very much, too.